Christine. And I'm Alan. And we're two pastors with PhDs needing an outlet for all that knowledge rolling around in our heads. So we put our heads together and came up with this podcast. Each week we will discuss a scripture passage from the Revised Common Lectionary. I'm going to interview Alan about his biblical knowledge. And I'm going to interview Christy about her amazing knowledge of the Reformation. And then we're going to talk together about the implications for today. Our hope is that between the two of us, we'll come up with some information that will help you with your sermon planning each week. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. Hello, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Today, we are going to be looking at Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 46. And this is that famous scripture on the greatest commandment. So let me start the questioning of Alan, our biblical expert here. But I just wanted to ask him first, where does this fit within the context of Matthew? Well, as I've said before, um, this whole section of Matthew's gospel is a, is, is a long story perhaps Matthew has crafted, dealing with uh, the religious leaders challenging Jesus' authority. Apparently it takes place in Matthew's narrative in the temple precincts. And so one by one, groups of the religious leaders come up and challenge Jesus' authority. And it's sort of, in, in Matthew, it leads to chapter 23, which is Jesus' woes on the religious leaders. And so it, it sort of leads up to, I guess, the high point or the low point maybe of, of the, the tension between, um, the, between Matthew's community and the Jewish leaders and, and sort of the, the criticism that's uh, expressed there in Matthew's gospel. One of the things we've talked about in the gospel of Matthew is that he is using a lot of references to the the Old Testament and to um, the the Jewish community in particular. And so I guess I wanted to ask one of the big parts of this is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all, all your mind. And how is that um, how is that important and how does that tie back to the Old Testament? Well, in in, in Jesus day, the the question about the summary commandment, the greatest commandment, the one commandment that kind of sums up all the rest of them was one that was discussed among uh, Jewish uh, teachers. And so this was a very familiar question. This was a question I'm sure Jesus had heard before. It wasn't something new. And Jesus' answer was not something new. I mean, this was a very familiar answer. Uh, he answered by quoting the Shema, which was Deuteronomy four, uh, six, chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. And um, it was something that uh, pious uh, Jews recited daily. It was posted on their door frames. And if they wore phylacteries on their wrists or on their foreheads, that would have been what was written on the note of paper within there. And, and so this, this idea, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, that's clearly the foundational commandment of the Torah. And so Jesus isn't breaking any new ground. He's, he's, they would have expected this answer from him, I think. And, and they probably were nodding approvingly when he gave that answer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One, of the, <clears throat> one of the people I read, actually, for today was, was very much believing that the the, the Pharisee came in, in full appreciation of Jesus' answer to that. That was kind of his take on it. Um, 
Yeah, and, and, and I can't remember if it's Mark or Matthew, and I mean Mark or Luke, and one of the other Gospels, um, um, the questioner says, you have answered rightly, and Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God, you know, so, <laughs> yeah, right. it's, it seems like they're on the same page. Yeah, yeah, but Jesus goes on to add the second part. Um, which, which also wouldn't have been surprising in that day and time, because um, in the questioning about what is the summary of the law, this, there, this was very common that, that, that uh, Jewish teachers, rabbis would have, would have said that the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself from Leviticus 19.18 was also a foundational commandment. And um, uh, so again, the, that Jesus answered with those two commandments was not surprising to them, would have not have been surprising. In fact, the Pharisees probably would have nodded in agreement. Um, um, I think, though, one of the interesting things I find about um, the command to love your neighbor as yourself, which we have <laughs> used in so many different ways, you know, we use it as a means of saying we all need to have good self-esteem, which that's not the point of the commandment at all. Um, we, yeah, we all do need to have good self-esteem, but that's not the point of the commandment. <laughs> <laughs> but um, um, if you read it in the context of Leviticus, it's very specific. Loving your neighbor in Leviticus 19 means that when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest, but you shall leave them for the poor and the alien. Um, that's verses 10 and 11. Loving your neighbor means you shall not revile the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but rather you should treat all people with dignity. Uh, loving your neighbor means you should not go around as a slanderer, among your people. And finally, it, it, the first part, interestingly, the first part of, of verse 18 is, you shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against any of your people. And it goes on to say, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which, um, you know, it, it gets pretty specific mm -hmm. about what loving your neighbor looks like. I guess the question that comes to my mind is, did Jesus mean it in that same context it was in Leviticus, or did he mean something else? Oh, I think so. I think so. I, I think... You know, um, there's a there's a there's an idea that that um, quoting a, a verse of scripture um, sort of implied the whole context in the Jewish mind in that day, um, and even later perhaps. And so, for example, around the qu quote, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" Uh, if you read the whole psalm, it's not just a cry of anguish and desperation; it's also an affirmation of faith that God has not abandoned the one who suffers. And so, um, I mean, that may be, there, there may be some of that. I think there's something to that, you know. I don't know that it's all that some, some want to make of it, but I think there's something to that. And um, um, I, I, there was actually something of a debate um, in that day about what loving your neighbor meant. And, uh, I mean, essentially the Jewish, if you read the Talmud, it seems like the Jewish people <laughs> have, have debated the meaning of just about everything in the, in the Old yeah. Testament, <laughs> in the law, you know. And so um, uh, there was a debate about what it meant. And, and so the question was, does love your neighbor? How far does it extend? Your Who's family, your, your clan, your village, the Jewish people as a whole. Um, there was very little sentiment that... Uh, loving your neighbor would extend beyond the circle of those who acknowledge that the Lord your God, the Lord is one, which is the first part of the Shema. Mm -hmm. So uh, nobody outside of Jewish circles or, or maybe proselytes would have been included in that de definition of neighbor, which is why 
Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. Right, and I was kind of headed towards the Good Samaritan because Matthew does not include that. Right. And does that shift, and I suppose that takes us to talking about Luke, but I do think as pastors we tend to lump these together. We tend, mm-hmm. to, we tend to mentally attach the Good Samaritan to this. Um, is it different? Um, I mean, it, it is significant that it's only in Luke. There are a number of parables only in Luke's gospel, and that's one of them. Um, I think uh, it's significant because uh, these parables reflect many of Luke's theological issues. Um, I think one of those issues was was um, the question of um, sort of exposing the um, hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders, and and on that on that page, I think Luke and Matthew would be on the same page. So uh, I don't see I don't see a tension there. I think they're complementary. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think I th- even though you don't have the uh, the parable of the prodigal son in Matthew, you do have. You have heard it said, "You shall love your neighbor," but I say to you love your enemies right, right. so yeah. that's even that's even more um, um, I think um, radical mm-hmm. yeah that's more radical yeah. yeah yeah let's let's move on to the second part of this um, I think a lot of times pastors kind of skip over um, it, at least contemporary pastors the next part which is the um, ascension and Jesus sitting right hand of God the Father and so uh, put this in a con- into the context. Well, one of the debates, and we don't hear a lot about it in Matthew's gospel. We do hear a lot about it in John's gospel. It comes up quite a number of times in John's gospel. One of the debates that was going on was who is the Messiah? And in fact, uh, even within Judaism, um, not every sect in Judaism had the same answer. Uh, the folks at Qumran, for example, expected two messiahs, one a political leader and another a religious leader who would have been a priest. And so, you know, there's not this, um, this sort of monolithic messianic expectation that was around in Jesus' day. That there were a variety of, of, of views on that. And so th- this was another question that was debated. Who is the Messiah? And, and so Jesus is sort of, um, I think Jesus is sort of, he, he's, he's, um, He's poking them in a soft spot that he knows is a soft spot because they would have known that there was no clear answer in their day among among this was a point of contention among the different sects in Judaism you know who is the Messiah and so he quote you know he asked them who is the Messiah and they give them a very a very um, milk toast answer well he's David's son <laughs> okay <laughs> okay yeah right that that doesn't mean a whole lot. And so then Jesus proceeds to quote what is, perhaps surprisingly, the most often quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament, Psalm 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hands until I put your enemies under your feet. And this is the most frequently quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. Um, And, you know, part of it, I think... You know, Jesus, Jesus puts this question to them in terms of if David, 
right? The traditional view of the authorship of the Psalms. If David calls the Messiah Lord, how can he be his son? And, and this stumps them. And so in Matthew's gospel, at least, this is the end of the questioning. Nobody, nobody dares to come along and challenge Jesus anymore because he stumped them. Uh, they can't answer. Um, uh, and so in, in Matthew's gospel, at least, that's the, that's, the, that's the significance of this, is that Jesus, you know, they, they come to him with his questions, and he just kind of easily, you know, sends each one of them on their way. And he, then when, it, when it's his turn to ask a question, nobody can answer. Yeah. And so, again, this is Matthew's, uh, this is part of Matthew's narrative of the conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. And he wants to show clearly that Jesus wins that, wins that round. Right, right. And that's one of the things that, as we'll get later, that Calvin will, will emphasize. Oh, yeah. And that was one cool. of his big pieces. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. But, but in this context, I think Psalm 110.1 is something that's in the broader New Testament context is much more important than we realize uh, because um, it, it's, it's part of the debate about the Messiah's identity that, is, that the New Testament is trying to contribute to is that they're wanting to insist that the Messiah is more than a man. The Messiah is not just a human figure who's going to ride off on his white horse and lead the armies of mm-hmm. Israel to overthrow the Roman conquerors, you know. Um, he, the, the New Testament wants to emphasize that Jesus, the, the Messiah, is an exalted figure. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting that in the New Testament, you don't have much um, of a theological argument to support, or you don't have much of an emphasis on Christ. Jesus is just the Christ, and that's just taken for granted. But you do have an emphasis on Jesus being Lord. And this passage is used to support that mm-hmm. assertion that Jesus is Lord. Well, I mean, that is the central Christian affirmation in the New Testament. So this is important to this them. Is a real, yeah, this is really important. It's very mm-hmm. important to them. And, and the other thing is, is that the, one, of the, one of the main um, means of demonstrating Jesus' exalted status was by way of the ascension that Jesus had ascended to the right hand of God the Father on high, and um, Psalm one hundred ten one is is quoted in support of that passage throughout the New Testament. That's one of the reasons why it's quoted most often is because of the importance of the ascension in the New Testament. So you know, for our for our purposes, you know, we it's funny because we celebrate Christmas and Easter and Pentecost, and and you know, in the New Testament, you find hardly any emphasis at all on the birth of Jesus. Right. Um, exactly. That's the resurrection is obviously central. Cent- um, Pentecost is obviously important, but the ascension is just as important. Interesting. Because it's not it's not just that Jesus was raised from the dead. But that he also so, ascended to the right, right hand of God, and right. and that is that's very important in the New Testament. So Jesus quotes this passage, um, and and um, you know basically he he's able to stump the religious leaders mm-hmm. who have who have come at him challenging his authority. Sounds good. Well, we'll examine a little bit of what happens to Ascension Day and the history of the church, and that might shed some light on <laughs> on this. Sounds good.
So we're back, and I'm going to ask Kriske about her uh, in-depth knowledge of the Reformers. Uh, you know, basically, how did the Reformers use the two great commandments in their theology? Well, they saw this all as, as part of God's ultimate plan. So they really felt that, like Alan really um, told us earlier, they would not have seen Jesus's, um, Jesus's um answer, you know, love, um, love your neighbor as yourself as anything but part of the Jewish law, that that was the correct way um, to understand it. But what they did do in their analysis was tie Jesus's interpretation to the Ten, Com- Ten Commandments, so that the first part, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your, and all your, in your mind, um, was was tied to the first part of the commandments, your duties to God, um, and then the neighbors yourself to the second part, your duties to neighbor. So they were very much drawing that together. And I guess as someone you know who's taught confirmation and someone who's familiar with catechisms, you know that I mean I guess as as a twenty first century Christian, that just seems like well, of course. I mean that's that goes without saying. Were the reformers the first one to make that link? Uh, that's a good question. I'm not sure if I know they were the if they were the first ones to make that link, but it is something they definitely emphasized. Yeah. Um, and I think part of this gets caught up in a Reformation tradition. Um, Calvin does it more um, than Luther does, but it's present in Luther's discussions. But C- Luther's always uh, criticized for being anti-law. For mm-hmm. example, that hey, if you're saved by grace alone, you don't need to do anything. Which Luther would. Uh, would say, no, that's not true. You're going to respond in faith through these things. Mm-hmm. But Calvin is the one, as we know, who so systematically goes through this and says, look, you can be justified by grace, but you aren't sanctified until you're doing this stuff. Oh, so okay. <laughs> this, this would be an argument for that pieces of sanctification that you uh, would be doing as a Christian. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, so obviously the the two great commandments played a central role for these for these folks yeah a- a- absolutely um part of their uh, part of the identity part of the this is this is still ultimately caught up in and your, your christian response to faith mm-hmm. so um i guess i wonder did the reformers pay any attention to jesus question to to the jewish leaders about the identity of the Messiah? Well, yes. Um, they. This is a big question for, for the reformers because they um, ultimately they wanted to, uh, who, who is the Messiah and where is Christ ultimately? Um, and so their response is um, trying to understand how God is present everywhere and yet how uh, Jesus is at the right hand of God at the same time, and is Jesus present everywhere? And that has meanings in terms of how they understand the Eucharist and the huge Eucharistic controversy, which is the main reason that this, that no one ever got back together in the Reformation, while we have all mm. these different denominations ultimately that break off from it, because no one can decide on what really happens there. So this becomes a big part of the Reformation tradition, is where is, where is Jesus? What is, the, what is the substance of Jesus? Mm. That's in, and it's you know I, I've always always found it interesting and a little bit sad that something that's meant to be a joyful thing became the bone of contention that separated the various Protestant groups. It really did, but it was a big deal. And for Calvin, of course, in in, in our tradition, 
that it's essential that Jesus is Lord um, and that, you know, we, he puts a lot of emphasis on the sovereignty of God and so the sovereignty of Christ as well. So there is a sense that that is where Jesus is and it is through the sacraments, the Holy Spirit then that, that infuses the, the presence of, of Christ in our sacraments. Mm-hmm. But that, that is a, um, a sign and a seal of mm-hmm. God's presence mm-hmm. where, where Luther is much more in and through and under, right? It's so hoc it's present in two places at once. <laughs> hoc est corpus meum. Yes. <laughs> this is my body. Exactly. Yeah. So that the, and of course the Roman Catholics, it just changes, right? right. Miraculously changes to complete substance of, of, of body and, and, right. uh, um, and blood. So you've got this, you've got these, that's only three of the many, many <laughs> positions right, out there right. on the Eucharist, but this becomes a big deal. But for Calvin, this is essential because it identifies, as we've, as Alan pointed out, who Christ is mm. and that Christ is indeed Lord. So you said that there was a debate about about where Christ is in related in relation to this uh, and, and in relation to to his presence in communion and and his ascension. Uh, tell me a little bit more about that. Well, okay. So if understanding that that Christ, it, it so the human human Jesus then dies, lives, dies, resurrected, and then ascends, so that. Christ in Christ's presence is indeed with the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit at one. Once there, the human Jesus in physical form does not come back down. It can't be two places at once is okay. how. Um, although this, that's all done then in the spirit, which then then becomes our connecting point with, with the living Christ. So it's strange. So this living Christ becomes part of that um, that. Godhead overhead right. as as God is present. So so but but they had a problem with seeing Jesus at the right hand of God and present in the in yes. in the in the, the sacrament of communion. And physically present. Yes. Really? Yes. Mm. So so uh, what so so Luther wanted it to be physically present. Calvin saw it more as a spiritual presence. Right. Yeah. And then someone like Zwingli would have said, this is purely an echolampadius. This is strictly a symbol. This has, there is right. no presence here. It's just something we do to commemorate. Right. But, but Calvin argues that we get the presence through our faith mm-hmm. and, and through, through our communion with others. Yes. Yeah. As the body the of Christ. Yeah. 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 It's interesting because that they bring this up because these days, you know, I think people tend to assume that Jesus is just as omnipresent as God is, and that 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 question doesn't seem to even enter into anybody's mind anymore. You know, that that they would debate, you know, where can Jesus actually be present with us? You know, in the celebration of the sacrament, in some way, whatever. I mean, obviously, the physical aspect of it is a, is is one that our tradition would not a, a acknowledge. But um, you know, I don't think anybody doubts that Jesus could be spiritually present with us anywhere. Right. I, I agree. I agree. And but that was a a piece of it. And of course, that's all. They're they're dealing with so many things from medieval theology that came before on the nature of form mm. on you know whether mm-hmm. angels have mass and all mm. these pieces and then we move even further then into wondering well who Jesus is because they go through all of the heresies all over again trying to figure out 
who is mm. Jesus? Is Jesus fully man and right. fully God? Is Jesus a ghost? Is wow. Jesus? They go so back through all that Christological all debates of the church. Wow. Yeah. Mm. Um, and so, of course, our magisterial reformers then say, okay, no, this is who we identify who Jesus is. And they pretty much affirm then the, the Orthodox positions. Uh, I shouldn't say um, the the accepted canonical positions of the Roman Catholic Church in terms of Jesus' identity, what we would read mm-hmm. in our um, sure. confessions. But then how that takes place in terms mm. of how this, what Jesus meant at the Eucharist, at, you know, this is my body, this is my blood, what does that mean? Sure. Um, and then there's, there's the debates, well, and where is Jesus in the presence of this? So we talked a little bit about how important the ascension is in the New Testament. How important was it for the reformers? Well, you know, that's an interesting question because the reformers get in trouble, uh, particularly Calvin, for getting rid of the ceremonies. And I think it's important to note that Calvin and Luther and, and other magisterial reformers were opposed to things that they thought were invented by the Roman Catholic mm. Church. So they did get rid of saints' days. They did not get rid of Ascension Day or Christmas or Easter um, or Pentecost or any of the main celebrations. And I think this is interesting. Now, what happens is sometimes in some places they had started to... Um, put less emphasis on these and they certainly didn't want people to feel like this was a duty they had to do they didn't want to turn it into a work Mm -hmm. they wanted you to come to these feasts and celebrations in a way that you were called by your christian conscience so with that in mind um, and of course it's right in the middle of the day um, it tended to fall to the wayside a little bit it wasn't emphasized but in a way that it is not all, all of this, all of them, all in the way them, that it was in the Roman Catholic Church, they didn't oh, right. want the the external. It's a holy obligation. Yeah, they didn't want yeah. the holy obligation, and they didn't want the 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 pieces that went to it that secularized it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think this is interesting. I found this little quote um, that Calvin did. I'm going to pull it up here. Um, this is Calvin's response. Besides, the abolition of feast days here has given grievous offense to some of your people in Bern, and it is likely enough that much unpleasant talk has been circulating among you. I am pretty certain, also, that I get the credit for being the author of the whole matter of getting rid of the saints' days, (laughs) both among the malevolent and the ignorant. But as I can solemnly testify that it was accomplished without my knowledge and without my desire, so I resolved from the first rather to weaken malice by silence than be over solicitous about my defense. Before I even entered the city, there were no festivals but the Lord's Day. So they had already in Bern, probably coming from an Anabaptist, from those who kind of went on the Anabaptist route, um, got rid they had of gotten the festivals rid of the festivals already. Yeah. But Calvin was actually in support of them. And, of course, if you are taking our own um, confessions, you'll see it's right there in the second Helvetic um, confession that, yeah, we celebrate the Ascension we mm-hmm. cel- and Christmas and Easter and the other pieces, but not those days that are made up to right. celebrate men. Right. So it is in there. And if you look uh, at the Book of Common Worship, we have the celebrations for that as well. Sure, right there. sure. So it's Absolutely. not gone. Get, Absolutely. Bring it back. <laughs> yeah. So so what happened that... that we lost that tradition in the United States, in that, American American Christianity. That came through the Puritans mm. and the Quakers, mm. um, who didn't, especially the Quakers, where 
you, and, and the pietist movement where you're coming in and your, your faith becomes much more um, personal about mm. you and Christ and anything outside hits it. And I found this greatest, this greatest little jingle from the Quakers, but enjoy. Okay. The outward symbols disappear from him whose inward sight is clear and small must be the choice of days to him who fills them with all praise. Keep while you need it, brothers mine, with honest zeal your Christmas sign, but judge not him who ever mourn feels in his heart the Lord Christ born. Mm. So so basically every day is Christmas, every day is Easter. Exactly. Yeah, you, you, you celebrate them uh, in your heart. You don't celebrate exactly. them with outward, outward observances. Out, exactly. And mm. so that really impacted it. And um, the pieces, uh, the Puritans, they, 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 they went too far, right? Um, they and they, as you move through the Synod of Dort, as you move into the 17th century England, as they're trying to um, remember, we have the English Civil War that goes on. Right. We have uh, the beheading of Charles the First. We have the Cromwellian era where everything is stomped on. Right. Um, and it's very somber and Christmas and Easter. And, and that, anything anything Catholic was stomped on, right? Yeah, yeah, it's gone. Yeah. Of course, then, of course, the Restoration, Charles, the first thing he does is start the feast day parties. Mm-hmm. And people are thrilled. So I think it comes over to this country. So people that then were leaving England come over and they are they are not celebrating those things and don't really add them back into the to the practices so i think it becomes kind of involved with our 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 country with our identity here and um it's just something we haven't emphasized yeah it's kind of sad that it's kind of sad that the protestant catholic battles in england kind of made their way over with those who came here uh, and settled this this land, and it sort of made its way into American Christianity. It, it is, but it's very much part of, of who we are. Yeah. Well, thanks, Christy. You're welcome. So one of the things I brought up in the last part of the conversation was how the Reformers looked at the uh, the. The Jesus's response is to um, uh, the law as uh, as a reflection of the Ten Commandments, and and that is something that has come into our tradition today. So we wanted to kind of flesh this out a little bit more in thinking about how how we process this in terms of modern Christian Christianity. Yeah, I you know, and you know, as a again as a pastor who teaches confirmation, I, one of the things I love to teach is is that the sum of the commandments is love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And um, in fact, I tell I tell my confirmands, you know, um, <laughs> I I even make it even more simple. I say I say you know, if you're trying to contemplate something. I really do believe that what would Jesus do is a valid question, and you're not going to stray too far from from God's um, intention for your life if you really seriously ask that question. What would Jesus do here? So I, I like the summary of the two uh, of of the commandments in 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 the two commandments. The other thing that I like to emphasize with that is that um, you know. W- 
in some respects, I think we want to say that Jesus kind of lets us off the hook when it comes to the commandments. You know, there were all these 613 commandments. Well, that was just that was just for how to observe the Sabbath. Right. <laughs> there were a lot of others beside that. And um, so, um, um, and, and somehow we want to say we're free from the law because we're saved by faith. Uh, but I tell people, you know, I, Jesus doesn't make it easier for us. He makes it harder. You know, um, uh, you know, you can you can say, well, I've never killed anybody, but Jesus says, yeah, but have you hated somebody enough in your heart that you, you would have killed him if you could have, you mm-hmm. know? And so Jesus makes it harder. You know, you can check off, yeah, I haven't killed anybody, I haven't stolen from anybody, I haven't committed adultery, these kinds of things. How can you ever check off, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind? How can right. you ever check off, love your neighbor as yourself? That's right. a that's a work in progress. We're always working toward that. Well, I, I, my, my brain is, is actually headed to Nazi Germany, and I think because there were so many folks there that said, well, I'm doing everything right, and I'm checking off all the boxes of what I'm supposed to do as a good citizen, and I haven't killed anybody, and I'm, doing, I'm paying my taxes, and I'm following these laws, and yet something horrible is going on mm-hmm. at the same time. So I think that takes us as a responsibility as, as God's, as God's disciples, to be active, to make choices that that represent that love of neighbor, and, sure. and it's it's that next step. I mean, it's that next step of our call, and it's definitely part of our reform tradition to be involved um, in our political and in our social our world. In other words, we can't we can't. It's not if we're going in the Christ and culture concept, right? Of neighbor, um, was that Richard Richard Niebuhr's Christ and culture? Yes. And uh, you know, we can't be the people that watch from outside and say, "Gosh, we're separated from the world." Our neighbor is also being involved in our world mm-hmm. and and taking care of um, sure of of folks in God's love. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you don't have to go to Nazi Germany to find the tradition of checking off the boxes. I mean, I right. grew up checking off boxes <laughs> on my offering envelope in the Baptist world, you know, and, and um, um, you know, there, there is also, I think, in this country that, that tradition of, well, I don't go to church, but I'm a good person, and so that's good enough. I live, I live um, a moral life, and so that's good enough. And, you know, on the one hand, I will say, well, yeah, I I would agree that Jesus was more about how you live and not about what you believe. Jesus was all about, you know, showing the mercy and love and compassion that you've received to others, giving that to others. Um, But, um, uh, you know, I would say the commandments are of a piece. They all go together, you know, and and they kind of flow from one another. And so loving God, loving God is where it starts. And then it flows into loving your neighbor as yourself. I I agree 100 percent. And I was in our little break. I was sharing with Alan one of the things that Calvin said, this quote. But I just it's really, really, really vibrant. But he is like um, he says. uh, It is vain to cry up righteousness without religion. This is as unreasonable as to display a mutilated, decapitated body as something beautiful. That's pretty graphic. It's really graphic. To 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 fo- to follow the the six commandments that are about loving your neighbor without following the commandments that that 
refer to loving God as like decapitating the law. Yeah, <laughs> That's yeah. I mean, graphic. it's it's very graphic, but you know, and and what I think is interesting is when you look at our tradition, and this has fallen away, um, is that we have a. In the, in the early Reformed churches, there was always the Ten Commandments are always always displayed prominently. Mm. Nothing else was displayed, right? They got rid of, of many of the other accoutrements and, and stained glass and almost everything else, but the Ten Commandments were almost always displayed. Wow. Um, and I think it's, it's really interesting as a whole, and it ties us to with this whole, if you will, um, view of, of God's working in the world from the time of creation till now, that there's the continuity with the Old mm-hmm. New Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that the Roman Catholic Church for a time really was emphasizing the seven deadly sins, which has fallen away in Protestant tradition, um, as and, and trying to kind of, of identify themselves from the, the, the Jewish heritage before a, almost a break. Whereas... And I think here what we get is that full continuity and that tie mm-hmm. back to God's good sure. creation and God-loving sure. creation that, that God made and made sure. us. Sure. Yeah, um, you know, and unfortunately, displaying the Ten Commandments these days has, has become more of a symbol of hypocrisy because it stands for those who, who want, to, um, want to make a show of, of following the commandments, but in reality, they don't, they don't really, uh, from their heart, they don't really follow it. They're, they're, you know, they're, their lives contradict the commandments in all kinds of ways. Uh, and yeah, that's one of the reasons why I really like the, um, the Matthew 25 emphasis in the PCUSA right yes. now, because... Um, you know, I think it's easy for us to assume that we love God and others. Um, you know, I think if you asked anyone in the pews, do you love God and do you love others? People would want to say, yes, yes, I do. But when you press the specifics, like the ones you've, we heard in Leviticus, you know, when it gets really specific like that, we can really fall short. And one of the things I like about Matthew 25 is you can't make excuses Around to find your way around the, what, what the Roman Catholics call in their social teaching the corporal acts of mercy that are lined out there, feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, um, sheltering the homeless, uh, caring for the sick and those in prison, those kinds of things. These are, these are um, definitive, uh, they're definitive of a Christian way of life. This is what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. This is what it means to love your, the Lord your God with all your heart. And um, I'm I'm not sure that I'm not sure we're comfortable taking it to that extreme. But I'm glad that the, the nom- that the denomination is is emphasizing that because I think that's a real challenge that we all need to constantly right. have before us. Right, and I love it too. I think it's it's a brilliant way to really get us thinking about what what it means to be a a follower of Christ and to follow what it means to love your neighbor and um and it's at least opening our eyes to that and sure. um. And I think that's part of what Calvin would say. Yes, you can be justified, but are you sanctified? Mm. You know, is that is that how is that process working in your life? Mm-hmm. Um, the language I would use for that is is the Pauline phrase of being conformed to the image of Christ. Yes, and that's an ongoing process that is that is never complete, really. Exactly, exactly, and it's definitely. Um, I suppose it takes us a, a different space, but I think it's a different space than the born again movement, which mm-hmm. is kind of a, Oh, I accepted Christ in my life. Once I'm saved, done. always safe. Right. Yeah. And yeah. Um, that this is a constant, God is constantly working with us. Yeah. 
You know, uh, th- this is kind of a backward way to get to around to the question of the ascension for our day. But I think, you know, one of the things that I'm very much aware of as a New Testament uh, student is that um, the central confession, I mean, the big confession of faith in the New Testament is to confess that Jesus Christ is His Lord. Lord. Yes. That is <laughs> crucial. Um, you find it in Paul. Paul emphasizes it several times. You know, it's it's something that is that is crucial in the context of Revelation. The church is under pressure. Um, you know, it, it is it is central, and I th- I think there's a whole lot packed into that. And I wonder what most people understand when they hear that or say it themselves. Yes. When they say Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, that's an interesting point. Um, I. I think as Presbyterians, at least we have learned the, through our our, our our catechetical training that that means that that Jesus is God, is one with God, is is part of the triune the Trinity. I don't think our day to day Christian brother, brothers and sisters would say that because they are looking at Jesus as my friend, mm-hmm. and their emphasis is on well Jesus is my buddy and 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 Jesus is my teacher, and so I think they lose. The divinity of Christ. Mm-hmm. Well, and I would say at least if at least if you see Jesus, you know, I I would say in my experience when I've heard people say Jesus is my Lord and Savior, they mean by that that I, he both gives me new life and then I try to follow his teachings. And you know, just if 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 we at least get the discipleship piece in there, I think we're we're doing pretty good, you know. Mm-hmm, <laughs> with that. True. Um, but but. Here's where the ascension comes in. You know, in our mind, do we really believe Jesus is Lord to the extent that we see him seated, exalted at the right hand of God, you know, uh, in the place of ultimate power and authority, you know, reigning over all things along with alongside God, you know, as sort of as co-regent, you know, mm-hmm. uh, is, is that something that we that we have room for in our imagination, yeah, in our theological imagination. That's an interesting question, you know, and I think one of the reasons that, additional reasons that maybe people haven't brought this back into the church is just how does that work within mm-hmm. our current worldview? I mean, first of all, this ascension and the whole concept of what the heavens are when we... Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where did Jesus go? Where, Where is Jesus the right really hand of go? God? <laughs> yeah. um, uh, w- with, with our modern science and understanding, and I think that's confusing um so i think maybe that's why it's been underemphasized, and yet so maybe we need to do some work in at preparing our people to be able to celebrate the ascension as a time of of celebrating something that is central to the christian faith central to christian faith central to who are are as christians and central to how we function as christians right Mm -hmm. um tell me more about that what do you mean by that well i mean i think we give a lot of lip service um to on the other side of this to to doing all the good things but but we don't recognize our faith in 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 Christ our faith in Christ as being one with God mm. I really I, I often see a demoted Christ mm. um, which is not yeah. Jesus my friend Jesus my buddy I, I, and I said that before but yeah I, uh, I, I, I love and hate that meme of buddy Jesus I'm I'm sure you've seen it where he's where he's where he's, 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 he's he's winking his eye and he's pointing his finger, yeah. you know, yeah. just like, you know, 
yeah, I got you, yeah. got you back there. And, and I, I, I love it because it's, I think it, it's emblematic of how we, how we misconstrue Jesus, but I hate it because it so totally misrepresents the way the New Testament views Jesus. I think there's this sense of fear of that Jesus, the judge takes, you know, back to the medieval era, even, mm. um, that someone that's that high and that's that all powerful that God is, mm. is hard to, hard to conceive of. And yet I think that's part of what we're missing because we're not quite ready to give ourselves to God in love. And when we, if, if we can let go and live into that faith that, that God is, um, instilled in us, then that Christ as Lord becomes uh, this beautiful symbol instead of a symbol of fear. And yeah. I think that's part of the, the process, but God, modern people don't want, you know, <laughs> we see it right today. They, they don't really want anyone to be in charge. We don't want any accountability. Exactly. We don't have to be answered to anybody we don't have to. but ourselves. Exactly. Yeah. You know, one of the, one of the ways I, I think one of the, one of the images that I find uh, very uh, beautiful and comforting, and I, I don't know that it originated here, but it's in, I, I'm most familiar with it in the study catechism of 1998, and that is that, you know, that the one who is judge is also the one who gave his life for us. Yeah. And I think, yeah. you know, who, what do we have to fear then from an exalted Jesus, one who is exalted to the role of being the judge of the living and the dead, if, if, um, if he's the one who loved us enough to give his life for us. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that's, I think, where our, we have trouble wrapping our brain around it. And, and maybe we can look into our own, our own sense of our own lack of, our own lack of wholeness, our own, our, 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 our own sin, our own attachment to our own, mm-hmm. to our own sense of worthlessness mm-hmm. um i think really comes into that as well. Um, well it sounds like we have a lot of work to do to reclaim the ascension in our churches um yes but yes let's leave today with let's reclaim the ascension let's throw those ascension parties let's let's <laughs> let's go <laughs> that <laughs> so, sounds good if we, we can, can have do. a mardi gras cake we can do we can do Z- ascension parties that's right we can have ascension <laughs> parties and do friends look into your book of common worship um there's the liturgy's right there for us sure it yeah. is all right well thanks christy you're welcome That's our podcast for today. We'd like to thank Mandy Peterson for our graphic design. And Sarah Renner for her beautiful music. If you heard something that was helpful to you in your ministry, please subscribe to our podcast. You can find it wherever you listen in. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.